Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of uh, what used to be one of my favorite Beatitudes, you know, in uh, Matthew, the Beatitudes that we call, you know, blessed are the, one of my favorite Beatitudes used to be, blessed are the self-righteous for God loves them more. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things that it's really uh, difficult for Christians to do is not become self-righteous, right? Now, maybe not you, but for, for most believers, it's really easy to start thinking, Man, look how good I am. Look, look how much God loves me. And it's this, 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 we get into this position where we start looking down at people because we're comparing their righteousness to our righteousness. And the problem with that is, is that God um, looks at the self-righteous pretty, pretty harshly in that none of us are righteous, no, not one. One of the things I love about Judges 15 is it reminds us that none of us have a right to be self-righteous. That everything good that God does is because of Him and for Him and through Him. Not because of you and for you, but He does work through you. And so in Judges 15, we're continuing the story of God through the life of Samson. And I'll tell you... Chapter 15 is tough because it is a, it's everything you don't want to see in a man of God. I mean, he gets everything wrong. And it's like, are you kidding me? You're supposed to be better than this. You're supposed to do more than this. And it's frustrating because throughout the entire chapter, God is still carrying on his plan. So in Judges 15... We, we're, we're, where we left off at the end of chapter 14 last week is Samson, on the seventh day, leaves and he doesn't consummate the marriage to his bride. And so he leaves and goes back to his father's home. And the very last part of chapter 14 is, and, Tim, uh, and uh, the woman's father gave the bride to be to one of the wedding party. So basically the best man got the bride. So it's almost like the father looked around and said, well, I paid for this wedding. I need to get this girl married. Hey, do you want to marry her? Here, she's yours. I mean, think of how crazy that really is. Samson didn't know about it. And so chapter 15 of Judges, verse 1, later on during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a gift and visited his wife. Now, first off, I recommend that if you go visit your wife, you bring something besides a goat, right? You know, they say diamonds are forever, but a goat you can barbecue. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's not what we would bring, but actually in those days, it would have been a good gift. That would have been a righteous gift, right? So he brings this goat, and he is visiting his father-in-law, and he says to his father-in-law, I want to go to my wife in her room. Now, what you have to understand is that in those days, and, and I think maybe in some cultures, very few, they had an arrangement of marriage where I would marry a woman, but she would stay living with her father, and then I would go do my thing and live where I want to live, and I'd come back periodically and visit my wife in this particular city. 
strange scenario, although I can see some cases where that might not be such a bad thing, right? I'm just joking. I'm joking, kind of. So he, he had, they have this arrangement. He comes back and he says to his father-in-law, I want to go with my wife to a room, but the father would not let him enter. So the father says, no, no, you, you can't go in there. And Samson's like, what do you mean I can't go in there? She's my wife. And then his answer is, I was sure you hated her, so I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. And then he tops up, isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? Now, are you starting to see the picture that mankind is, is, is brutally broken? I mean, in, in the very beginning of the story, we start to see the nature of man. We start to see the truly uh, um, um, decrepit way that a man thinks. So first off, Samson is going back to visit his wife after being gone for a while, brings a goat, is denied. The father says, you know, you left. I thought you hated her, so I gave her away to your best man. But wait, I, she has a younger sister who's way prettier than her older sister. So why don't you marry her instead? Now, one thing we need to be clear about here is that sometimes critics of Christianity or critics of the Bible will look at a passage like this and they will blame God for approving of something that He's not really approving. It's just being reported on. So in other words, you might have somebody say, See? Look in Christianity where, where women are treated like trash. They're just passed around like property. But God didn't approve this. God never said this is the right thing to do. He never said this is what I would do. We're seeing the heart of man. We're seeing the deceitfulness of man. We're seeing the true brokenness and the true depravity of mankind. We see it all throughout this text. So don't blame God for the sinfulness of man. Amen? Don't, don't say this is God's fault because it's not. If God were doing this, he would have done it where the woman was respected. He would have done it where there was holiness. He would have done it in a totally different way. And yet, God is reporting here through the Scripture, this is the true nature of what's going on in Israel. Now remember, the whole reason that they were in this mess was because once again, in verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, once again, again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so he gave them over to the Philistines to be ruled for 40 years. So they're getting the justice that they deserve. That's what's going on here. So when Samson heard this, verse 3, he said to them, This time I will be blameless when I harm the Philistines. What's going on in Samson? Samson is completely in the flesh here. He, he's filled with rage, and his only purpose at this point is vengeance. He wants to get even, and he's justifying, hey, what I'm about to do, I'm justified in doing. I'm going to go, go uh, uh, break out some justice here, and I'll be okay doing it. He was not thinking of the integrity of God. He wasn't thinking of the glory of God. He wasn't thinking, how can I bring uh, uh, um, honor to my, to my God? He was thinking, I'm going to get even. I'm going to go do something to make them pay for what's happened here. And so here is his plan. He went out and he caught 300 foxes. Verse 4. He took torches, took the fox's tail to tail, 
or turned the fox's tail to tail. He put a torch between each pair of tails. Then he ignited the torches and released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned the piles of grain and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. Here we have the original Firefox. Now, I honestly just thought about that this morning, and I really wonder, is that where that comes from? I don't know, but it would be kind of cool to know that that would be the case. Now, never in a hundred years would I figure that the way that I'm going to enact justice and and avenge myself is by grabbing 300 foxes, which they might have been jackals. The translation there could be jackals. It makes more sense to be jackals because they're they're, uh, animals that come together in a pack. But he, never in my mind would I say, I'm going to go capture 300 uh, foxes and then I'm going to tie their tails together. And then I'm going to take a torch and tie it with the tails. Then I'm going to light them on fire and send them out. That, that just, that's pretty creative if you ask me. A couple of things. Why would he take these foxes or jackals and tie them together? And why would he light a torch and tie it to the tails? Why not just take one fox, tie a torch to it, then send 300 off? Why would he put them together? Well, the practical reason is this. If you put one one on fire, what's that fox going to do? He's going to run straight to his den, right? So all you do is blow up a bunch of fox dens. This way you tie them together and the two of them are going to go to the den. Why? Because they have different dens. So they're going to run all over the place spreading fire. It's it's like having a flamethrower, but it's the original flamethrower, right? So imagine the townspeople, they look and they start seeing their wheat and they start seeing their vineyards and they start seeing their olive groves smoking. They're like, what's going on here? And all throughout the countryside, the smoke is starting to rise and then the fire starts to catch. I don't know if you've ever seen a forest fire, but a forest fire is absolutely breathtaking in the enormity of damage that it can do and how quickly it can do it. The temperature can get up to 1,000 degrees, and it can move 40, 50 miles an hour. It just can just, it's amazing how the fire science works on this stuff. But this is what's going on in front of their eyes. And so the people now, the Philistines are now looking at this, realizing that everything they were going to eat, everything that they were going to prepare is gone like that. So they ask the question, Who did this? Verse 6. They were told it was that Samson guy. And so when they heard this, it was Samson, the Timnite's son-in-laws, because he took Samson's wife and gave it to her companion. The Philistines went to her and her father and burned them to death. So let me get this straight. The Philistines are going to burn the father and the daughter to death because of something that Samson did. Once again, we're seeing the depravity of man. We're seeing that they weren't righteous people. The reason that they were being judged by God was because they were not men of God. They were against God, and this is just part of the revealing of their depravity. In fact, if you look all throughout the book of Judges, that's what you see over and over and over. The people of God are sinful, but also the people who aren't of God are sinful. That's why in the very beginning of the whole story of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 and 7, this story of the, the, the ark that's built, right? That whole story begins with 
The only inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. Let me ask you a question. How can you and I be self-righteous if this is the nature of our heart? I mean, how can we dare stand before God and say, God, you really need me? I mean, God, aren't you glad that I'm part of your team? Aren't you glad that I said yes to you? Aren't you glad that I stepped across the line and I believe in you? Don't you, don't you have a great plan for me? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't love us. I'm not saying that he doesn't have a plan. But I'm saying that plan has more to do with him than it does with you and me. Amen? And the danger is when we start looking at our life thinking that we are all that and a bag of chips because we got the t-shirt. The danger is when we think, man, I really am something. Here's the thing that this story has taught me the last four, or the last three weeks and next week as well. You can be a dirty, rotten scoundrel and God still move mountains through you. And you can be holy and righteous and following after the heart of God and not see amazing fruit in terms of immediate amazing fruit. If we're tempted to think that God needs us, then we just need to go back and see that God can use anybody. He can use Samson. He can use a donkey. Remember Balaam's donkey? He can use a tree. He can use whatever or whoever he wants. I think that the, that the real shame is when we begin to judge people based on what we see God doing through them. And we assume that if there's a lot of results, they must be following God. And if there's not a lot of results, they must not be following God. Now, don't... Now don't, don't Misunderstand me here. A faithful, righteous person is going to produce fruit. But it's not always the fruit that you and I see immediately. And just because somebody's preaching has people moving all about and getting saved doesn't mean that the person preaching is righteous and holy and following God. i got to be honest with you. This drives me nuts. I don't like this. It confuses me. Because in Jeffrey's world, God blesses the righteous and he doesn't bless the unrighteous. But in God's world, he blesses who he wants to bless and he chooses not to bless who he doesn't want to bless. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense except to say God is sovereign in all that he does. And I, wanna, I want you to be careful because I have to be careful that when we look at somebody and we say, so... Let me, let me look at your ministry. I don't see a whole lot of fruit from that. God's just not blessing you. What if God's doing something else? And what if the blessing is not about the person as much as it is about the people who are listening or the people that that person sent to? You know, there are missionaries who will go and do work and they will work for years and years and years and see nothing. They can faithfully work the ground Day in and day out and see nothing. In fact, a few of us in this room are going to be going to another part of the country here in a couple of months. And we're going to be going literally to the ends of the earth looking for where um, um, there are people who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. And we're going to be telling them that there is a God who has rescued you through Jesus Christ. And it's by grace you're saved through faith. And so we're going to be doing that and yet... Through all of that work, it's possible that not one single person will come to faith in Christ while we're there. 
And it's possible that the missionaries that we're going to be working with while we're there will spend years laboring in these fields and not see one single person come to faith in Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll look at their life and say, well, you just wasted your life. But here's the thing. It's not about the results as much as it is about being faithful to what God has called you to be and do. Amen? We've got to look differently here. If God has called you and sent you somewhere, then you be faithful in where God has called you and how He sent you. Leave the results to God because what we do know is sometimes you go to a field that's got hard, hard, hard ground. And it's, you, you can't go and throw some seeds in and expect that to grow. No, somebody's got to break up the ground. I actually did this in my front yard. My front yard is right now in progress. My front yard has basically been a parking lot for the last 20 years, right? It's still a parking lot. I couldn't grow grass in my front yard if I tried, and I haven't really tried because then you've got to cut it if you grow it, you know what I mean, right? But I'm getting old, and I, I'm, I'm figuring I need to do something, right? So I took a tractor, and I, and I put those big uh, claws down, and I just started raking the yard to break up the ground. And what I discovered is there's this giant root uh, net underneath the sand that you couldn't see until you started raking the ground. But I literally have a mat of roots covering my entire front yard. And so now I'm in the process of pulling all of those roots out. And it, and it just never ends. It just keeps going and going and going. Here's what I'm saying to myself, though. As long as these roots under here are covered up, and unseen, they're going to be sucking the nutrients and the life and the water from any grass that I would want to grow here. So I'm doing the ugly, nasty, painful work. Like my whole back and neck and head hurts now because of this. I'm doing the painful work, the, 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 the ugly work of pulling these roots out because I'm preparing the way for someone at some time to grow a beautiful yard. I may never see it, but if I'm faithful to the work, eventually something can grow there. Folks, listen, we got to be very, very careful, not just in our own lives, but in judging other people's lives, that we don't judge by what we see with our eyes, but we need to, we need to just be careful that we have spiritual discernment to know what faithfulness looks like and to know what it doesn't look like. Because here's the thing. When God is ready to move, He's going to move, no matter who's on stage. In fact, I, I sometimes thank God that I've not, I've not seen this monstrous revival through my preaching. Here's why. Because I know in my own heart, I'd be going, look what I did. Man, the ending to that story is not good. It's just not good. And for many of us in this room, it wouldn't be good because we'd start to believe our own press. Man. Look how much God uses me. But on the flip side, we can also be tempted to say, man, God's not using me at all. Hey, what if we stop judging with our eyes and start just being faithful to the calling that God has in our life? Amen? And what if the harvest is really there, but it's just in the groundbreaking stage? When I stand before the Father, you know what I think is going to happen? I think... I'm just imagining this, you know, just based on bits and pieces of Scripture, my understanding of it. I think when I stand before the Father, He's going to say, you know, you saw nothing here. 
But what you did faithfully turned into this. And then there's going to be times where he says, you thought that this was about you, (laughs) but it wasn't. They were just ready for a harvest, and you happened to be the guy in town on that particular day. So the glory goes to God and God alone always. At the same time, here's why this is cool. I can preach and leave and be totally satisfied regardless of what you do. Not satisfied in that, you know, I mean, I always want people to move. But I don't have to base my preaching on your response. And I I say that overall for every preacher. I say that for you. You don't have to base your success on what you see happening. Why? Because there's a whole lot that plays into it. Your job, my job, is to be faithful to the task before us. Nobody wants to break up the ground. Everybody wants to cut the yard or or pick the fruit, right? But if you don't plow the ground, you'll never have fruit. So in this story, he sends these, these foxes out. They burn up the whole town. The Philistines come and they say, who did this? Oh, it was you. And so they killed the, the, the daughter and the father. And then verse 7, Samson told them, because you did this, I swear I won't rest until I've taken vengeance on you. Do you see the cycle of vengeance here? Well, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. Well, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. Oh, yeah, well, you hurt me, well, I'm going to hurt you. Back and forth and back and forth. It's the Hatfield and McCoys. Now, do you all know who that is? If you know who I just talked about, raise your hand. I'm just curious. Okay, the rest of you, go back and look at Netflix. Hatfield and McCoys, a big feud between two families. It started when one person killed another. They killed each other for years. And then finally they said, hey, if we keep doing this, we're all going to be dead, right? That's, uh, it was the same thing. It was in the heart of man. And so the Philistines went up and they camped in Judah and raided Lehi. So the men of Judah said, why have you attacked us? So here you have the Israelites in Lehi being attacked by the Philistines. And so they look around and say, we got to figure out why they're doing that. We, we haven't offended them. And they go and they say, what do we do to you? We're your subjects. You rule over us. And the Philistines said, we have come to tie Samson up and to pay him back for what he did to us. You see, Samson, you did that to me, I'm going to do it to you. You did that to me, I'm going to do that to you. And I just skipped a whole section of Scripture, didn't I? Sorry about that. Let's go back. So when Samson said, I'm going to take vengeance, what he did was he went out and he killed the men who killed his, should have been wife, and the father-in-law. He went out and he killed them. The Bible says he ripped them limb to limb, just like he did the lion. Right, So then the Philistines came to, re, to avenge that killing. And the people of Israel said, time out. Let's make a deal. How about you let us handle Samson? So they went and they got to the cave where Samson was hiding. And there were 3,000 of them. Verse 11. 3,000 men of Judah went to the cave at the rock of Etam. Now just think of this picture. 3,000 men. With their swords and their spears and their shields or whatever they had. 3,000 people is about half the city of Gulf Breeze within the city limits. So if you take 98 and you cut cut the city in half, 
You've got about 3,000 people live on that side, the north side, and about 3,000 that live on the south side. Imagine all of us on the south side, everybody that lives here, gets up and we walk across the bridge, right? 3,000 of us walk across the bridge and we go to Graffiti Bridge where Samson is hiding. That, that's the picture in your mind. And we're all standing out there calling for Samson. Hey, Samson, come on out. And I'm just imagining my head, Samson comes out of the cave going, what are you all doing here? Right? Now, if I were the 3,000, I would feel scared. Because I know the stories of Samson. And I knew that he jacked people up. Like, literally, he, just, he, would, he would rip them. If you can rip a man from limb to limb, you're pretty bad, right? So 3,000 of them were there. And, and Samson is wanting to know, what are you doing? And they said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule us? What have you done to us? His reply, I've done to them what they did to me. I got an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Then they said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And then Samson said, swear to me that you, won't yourself, you, won't your, that you yourselves won't kill me. They go, okay, we swear. We promise. So they tied him up with new ropes. And then they let him out like a prisoner, right? So all 3,000 surrounding behind him. And he's walking like this, tied up. But then in his mind, he's going, it's a trap. It's a trap. They hand him over to the Philistines. And as soon as they hand him over, the Bible says that the uh, new uh, straps on his wrist fell off like flax, right? They just dropped off his hands. He looks around. He sees a donkey jawbone. He grabs it. Now, donkey jawbone's not huge, but it's basically a knife. I don't know if you've ever had an animal and you've pulled out the jawbone, but, you know, donkey's head's going to be about that big. His jawbone's going to be about like that. It's going to kind of have a curve to it, right? There'll be some sharp teeth on it. He grabs this jawbone, which is essentially a knife, and he kills a thousand Philistines with it. A couple of problems here. One, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to be touching anything dead. The jawbone come out of a dead, dead animal. Two, he's just really getting even for what they did. So the heart of his action is vengeance. It's an eye for an eye. And yet three, he killed all of these men. And God is the one who gave him the power to do it. See, I'm so conflicted on this. Because the way I would write the story is, and Samson was in the cave praying, submitting himself to God, asking him, Father, what will do you have me to do? Not my will, but your will. Purify my motives and purify my heart. <coughs> Give me power to do that which is right. And then he goes out, and in the name of the Lord, he says, in the name of the Lord, to defend his honor and his name. See, this is the way I would write the story, like David, Right? in the story of David and Goliath. But instead, this story is completely about Samson, and yet God is still the one who is making it happen through him. What does that tell you and me? Turn, if you will, in, in your Bibles to the New Testament, to Philippians chapter 1. As I've already mentioned, the character of a man does not necessarily mean that God will use him or not use him. As much as we don't like that, 
God will use anybody at any time that He chooses to use them. And it's more about the people that are listening than the person who is saying. And think about it. If I were a dirty, rotten scoundrel and you needed to know Christ, do you really think that God would prevent you from hearing the gospel because of my character? No. He's going to work through my humanness so that you can hear the gospel. Now, I may want to take the credit for that, but really I don't deserve it because it's God who did it. He did it in spite of me. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 15. Paul says, to be sure. In other words, take this to the bank. This is a guarantee. You don't have to question this. He said, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. But what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to the Philippian church, yes, there are people who preach Christ with good intentions. Their motives are pure. They love God. They love the people. And then there are other people who are doing it just for financial gain. They're doing it just to cause me trouble. They're doing it for selfish reasons. But what do the reasons matter so long as Christ is being preached? I've never liked this passage. But if I really get to the heart, to the truth of why I don't like this passage, here's the the reason why. Because I'm self-righteous. Because I say to myself, why do they deserve to see God move through them when He really should be moving through me? That's the root of that. Am I the only one? Well, how come God is blessing them? He really should be blessing me. That's the root of it. And I think on some level, all of us, at least at some point, are guilty of that. We look at somebody else and we say, I deserve what they're getting. That's not fair. But what if, just, just what if God was protecting you and your heart? And what if he was shaping you and molding you in keeping you from seeing that so that you don't become that? I know when I was traveling full time um, several years ago, I used, to, I used to look at some of these guys on the big stage, right? You know, they were leading worship and they were speaking and, and I'm going, man, we're the same age. I have a degree they don't, right? I mean, I, I did the hard work of school. They just, they just got discovered, and now they're, they're doing all these camps, and people are listening. They're doing CDs and records, and, and like they're on flyers and posters, and they're speaking at these conferences, and we're supposed to learn from them. And I, was, I used to be thinking, how come they get to do that? But if you fast forward 20 years down the road, actually it's more than that, 25 years down the road, what I realize is that a number of them are no longer in ministry. A number of them had affairs. A number of them had financial crises. 
And, and basically, to, to say it maybe just from a distance, their character was not strong enough to support the platform that they had been given. And I thank God every day. Well, maybe not every day. But I thank God from the bottom of my heart that He did not let me see that kind of fame and success. Otherwise, maybe my heart would have wound up in the same spot. Is that fair to say? And I only share that with you because some of you in this room are struggling with where you are and what you're doing. And you're, you're looking at other people and you're going, how come God's blessing them and He's not blessing me? What if He is blessing you? What if he's protecting you? What if he's shaping you and molding you? What if he's teaching you and, and helping you to, to have the character that will withstand the platform that you might one day get? Isn't that what a loving father would really do for a son or a daughter that he loves? And so in Philippians, I think the truth is that what really matters is that the gospel is preached. Now, here's the cool part. When I finally get to the point where I realize that the gospel is the good news that our sin has been forgiven through Jesus Christ, when I finally get to the point where it's no longer about me, but I recognize that I deserve death and I deserve hell and I deserve punishment, and yet God lavished His grace upon me and He's pulled me into His family, when I realize that I'm not as righteous as I think I am in and of myself, I can truly say to God, God, thank you for saving me because you saved me in spite of me and so now when I look at others, I don't have to judge them. I don't have to be their, 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 uh, their arbiter of truth. All I have to do is love them in the name of Jesus and speak truth with love. That changes everything. Guys, listen to me. That changes everything. When we truly leave self-righteousness and realize that we deserve the worst of the worst... We can love people in a different way. When you start loving people in a different way, there is freedom like you wouldn't believe. You don't have to hold a grudge. You don't have to be jealous. You don't have to be envious. You don't have to be angry. You can simply say, you know what, I'm happy for you. I'm glad God is blessing you. When you see somebody that you know they're not right with God and yet God is blessing them, instead of seething with anger, you can pray for them and say, God, I pray that through you, they would be blessed and that they would come to know you as deeply as they need to know you. You know, it's easy for us to start judging people, isn't it? That's not our job. Now, you know self-righteousness because it is always, always, always going to lean on justice. Every time. You can talk about mercy and grace. There's always a but. But God is just. Right? Every time. That is a telltale sign of self-righteousness. Humility says, yeah, I know I deserve that. Yes, it's sin. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But God demonstrated, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what's beautiful about that? He died for us while we were dead in our sin. He didn't say, fix it, get it right, then come to me. He said, you are rotten, dirty, broken to the core, and yet I love you as much as I'll ever love you, and it will never, ever change. That's what grace is truly all about. All right, let me finish this up. So, Samson kills all of these men, a thousand men with this jawbone, and then... He writes a song and performs it. <laughs> and then he does the original mic drop. Seriously, listen to what it says. Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. And verse 17, when he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and named that place the hill of a jawbone or the high place of a jawbone. So he sings his song. Then he goes, bah! And walks away. How cool is that, right? It's like he is a he is a a, a, a conflicted man because after singing the song, verse eighteen, he was very thirsty and he called out to the Lord. Here's what he said. He said, "Lord, you have accomplished this great victory through your servant." Wait a minute. He just did all this stuff for vengeance in his own accord. Now when he needs something, he goes to God and he says the right words. Oh God, you've done a great victory through me. Are you going to let me die at the hands of these uncircumcised men now? Now, if I were God, which I'm not, if I were God, here's what I'd have said. I said, you killed a thousand. You figure out how to drink, right? If I were God, I would not have been kind to him. I would not have given him water. But see, what we don't know is Samson's heart. We don't know what was going on in there. What we do know is what we see on the outside, but what we also do know is the character of God and that God is kind even to those who don't deserve it. Can I say that again for those in the back? God is kind even to those who don't deserve it. Therefore, you know what I'm going to say? We are to be kind even to those who don't deserve it. Why? Because none of us deserve it. That's why the beggar on the street, that's why the addict, that's why the adulterer, that's why the liar, that's why the thief, none of us have any right to hate those people. When I say hate, what I'm really talking about is to despise. None of us have any right to, to be critical, with, with, at least with a critical. Now, we can speak truth, but being critical with a critical spirit, you know, that whole self-righteous thing again. None of us have any right to, to, to um, um, put them aside because God is kind even to those who don't deserve it. Look at what he did. He became thirsty, so verse 19, God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi, and water came out of it. Samson drank, his strength was returned, and he revived. God sent revival (laughs) 
to Samson. He was revived. He was refreshed by water out of the ground. I want to end with this. So, have you ever noticed how we are really, really good at restoration? We believe in restoration for those who are not believers and who become believers. Really good at that. Like all over America today, somebody who was a murderer became a Christian. They can stand on a stage and they can, they can preach. They can share of how God restored them. An adulterer, a liar, a thief. How all over the, all over the world, somebody who does evil things and, and God saves them, they're restored. Now they can tell their story. Or even just people in the pew. You know, they do something dumb and they have repentance and we will put, listen to the story of God. But have you ever noticed that the church is not really into restoring people who are leaders who fall? That's kind of out of the bounds. Like if I do something really sinful, I'm done. I'd be worthless to the church. They'll take me, wipe me up, throw me away, never to serve again. And then the question is, do we really believe in restoration if that's what we do to the people of God? Why would we let a murderer have more restoration and forgiveness than we would let one of our own family? By the way, I'm not about to confess something. I just want don't you know, just, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying, overall, have you noticed how, especially preachers, when they fall, man, we wad them up, we kick into the curb, and we judge everything they've ever said and everything they've ever done as sinful and selfish and evil. We will take everything that they've ever taught and we'll totally get rid of it and we'll, we'll discard it as if God never used them at all. And then... When they have true repentance and when they do truly say, you know what, I was, I, was, I was sinful. It was all about me. God has forgiven me. We will hold them at arm's length for years and years and years. And we will consider them unworthy of ever saying anything again. And yet we claim that we're a people of restoration. Does that make sense? And so then, well, it's just not long enough. Well, how long is long enough? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? At what point do we look at you and say, you know what? God truly has restored. Now, I don't know the answer time-wise, but I can tell you this. We should do better at restoring people because God is all about restoring people. Amen? And here's the thing. It makes perfect sense that the people on stage would fall in the numbers that they do because they've got the biggest target on their backs. Because they're flesh and they are blood, they were human. And it makes sense that the weariness of the task would overcome them at some points and they would fall away. But what greater testimony of the grace of God than to restore those very people? I'm not offering a solution other than to say we really ought to think more deeply on how we restore people.
because you can serve your life faithfully for years and years and years, then have a moment of, of stupidity, a moment of weakness, a moment of sin, and for the rest of your life, that's what you're judged by. May I present to you David, a king who is called of God and who's the only person in the Bible that was said of, he's a man after my own heart. What if God works in spite of people? What if God is bigger than our own humanity? I think He is. All right, let's draw a circle. What have I said today? God does work how He wants to work, when He wants to work, in what ways He wants to work. He works through you and through me. He desires, though. He works Best through men and women of God who are holy and who are walking with Him and who are clean before Him. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Obviously, we should walk with God, but we should also recognize that when God moves, it's not because of us. It's because of Him. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.